Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Reflections Podcast. We're grateful that you've taken the time to uh, listen to our conversation. And as always, uh, here at the front, we want to start off by reminding you that our conversation is meant to be listened to within the context of Pastor Phil's lesson from this morning. Uh, today was Pastor Phil's lesson on James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. So if you have not listened to or watched Pastor Phil's lesson from today, stop listening to us, go listen to him, and then come back to us, and you'll get much more benefit out of what we have to say. This week, I am joined by David Payton. How are you, David? Good, brother. Good. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, we'll get right to it. Um, so James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. The scripture says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a, a short passage, but it packs a pretty powerful punch. So, David, uh, what stood out to you from the sermon this morning? Well, I, I think the solemnity of really being your brother's keeper um, is is something that really stands out to me from the message this morning, as well as just reconsidering this this concept, um, this biblical concept of um, guarding one another's souls. Um, that, that really is what, what is happening or what's being um, expounded in this, in this idea. Um, you know, as, as Cain said to the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? Um, after the Lord came to him and said, where's your brother? Um, the, he, he shot himself in the foot with his own question. <laughs> uh, because because his question was already an answer. He is his brother's keeper, um, and and that reality I think is it's something that in this hyper individualistic twenty first century life that we live, um, the it it cuts against the grain of of everything around us that you can live this self isolated life in your own little Instagram. Uh, you know, behind your text message safety, um, we we actually, I think, not only need to be on the lookout for each other's souls, but invite um, the community of believers to uh, to look into our lives, to walk with us in wisdom. You know, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm, um, as it says in Proverbs. So. I think just the general emphasis on needing to be our brother's keeper and being open to allowing our brother to be our keeper um, is that that stuck with me today. Yeah. And I, I think that goes to a concept, uh, something that is kind of devalued in a lot of churches. At least it's been, it's been this way kind of in American culture for a long time. Uh, it's the idea of church membership when we're members of one another, we have that tight bond. Uh, we are our brother's keeper. Um, if for no other reason than that we've bonded together, which brings, which brings up an interesting point and something that I was, I was thinking about, you know, I've got, I've got really good Christian friends down in North Carolina, 
some in South Carolina, some in Colorado, you know, other, other places around the country, around the world, perhaps even. Um, and David, you've got good Christian friends in South Africa and some out in, what is it, Connecticut and Ohio. Like, like you have good Christian friends elsewhere. But at the end of the day, there's a relationship that you and I have together that is distinct from the relationship you have with your Christian brothers in South Africa and that I have with my Christian brothers in North Carolina. And it's because we're members of the same church. And so if you see me wandering or I see you wandering, we actually have a, a higher responsibility to obey James chapter five, verses 19 to 20. We have a higher responsibility to obey that within one another um, than we do with even our friends that are perhaps maybe in some respects closer friends, but are not part of the same church. So I think a passage like this really lends some significance to the idea of church membership, that this is a big part of that. Exactly. And I I think the, if you were to ask that, ask a probing question of yourself. um, And I'd say that, you know, to the listener, uh, whoever's listening to this is how can you obey James five? without being a church member. Um, and we're going to get into it in a little more detail as well uh, when we discuss Matthew chapter 18. But there, there is, there's really no way of actually fulfilling in a, in a, in a comprehensive way, in, in like a really honest way, fulfilling the, the command of Matthew chapter 18 without actually having some sort of identified body that you're doing that with. Otherwise, it's like this random arbitrary group of people um, that, you know, like who gives you uh, who gives you the authority to to exercise that kind of serious level of discipline over someone's life um, when there's been no identifying of that person with that group. Um, And so church membership is is a necessity in order for us to fulfill the one many of the one another commands in Scripture. Yeah, and I think, I think you brought up that pat. You brought up that passage, Matthew eighteen, and I think now's as good a time as any to go ahead and and bring that up. Um, Matthew chapter eighteen verses fifteen through twenty are really kind of the the premier text as regards this concept of church discipline. Um, and I have that up. I can. I can go ahead and read that, and then we can kind of talk about it a little bit here, David. Um, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so you kind of have those those three stages of the the individual. You go alone, and then you go with others, and then you go to the church. So, um, David, what 
what are kind of your thoughts on this passage? Is there anything in particular that kind of stands out to you as regards this passage and then James 5, 19 to 20? Well, I think if we were to take just one step back before getting into the, the steps, the precise steps of, of church discipline, um, if you take the, the passage in its context, the whole of chapter 18, um, there's, there's these preceding uh, discussions that Jesus has about um, the parable of a lost sheep um, and, not wanting, and us not, um, him not being pleased if we despise the wandering of a little sheep, which is um, his description for a believer. Um, and then also temptations to sin. So if someone causes one of these little ones, referring to believers, to sin, it's actually better that you, um, uh, it's better that you have yourself a, a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into into um, help the uh, into the sea. Um, that's actually a different context, but it's the, a different passage, but it's the same context. Um, and then, but he begins it by saying. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that kind of reflects back on the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the very beginning, the, the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, so I think in, in, as we're approaching the matter of like discipline, um, much like you would think of it as parental discipline, when a father comes to a child, to discipline him or her, he shouldn't come with a domineering attitude, but almost um, a, an attitude of, of humility saying, I'm a sinner just as much as you. And I'm doing this because this is how my heavenly father deals with me. Um, and, and I need you to be restored to obedience. Um, so that, that, that atmosphere of, um, poverty of spirit and of humility needs to um, it needs to be in all of us. And that's what even then picked up in Galatians chapter six, that if anyone is caught in a fault, let those who restore him do so in a spirit of gentleness. Mm. Um, and so that, that attitude I think should pervade all of us whenever we coming to one another. Um, no one wants to have a, an authoritarian like um, taskmaster blasting us. If we, um, if we show signs of, of wandering in our lives, um, because that's not the way the Lord deals with us. So that's just a first thought. And I'll, I'll jump in here real quick and add something to that. Um, I was reading today, uh, started yesterday and today just started a book by Dane Ortland, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. And I think the subtitle is something like Christ's Heart for Sinners or something like that. And it's, it's looking at not only the, the scriptures of the New Testament, but also some of the writings of the Puritans and men like those who the, the writings deal with the way Jesus interacts with sinners and his heart for sinners. In today's chapter, um, he made the point that um, the only time in the Gospels we see Jesus's heart specifically mentioned um, is uh, this passage. I think it's in Matthew 16, I think, um, where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Hmm. And it's in the context of saying, if you have this yoke, if you have a burden, come to me and I'll give you rest. My, my yoke is light. My burden is light. Um, 
And that was just really encouraging, not only to see the way that Christ views me when I sin, but it's, it's helpful for me to also see that and know that I'm supposed to be like Christ. And I think you brought up a very good point there, David, that before we even get into what the exact process is and the pragmatics of this, we need to make sure we're approaching this whole idea with an attitude of Jesus is incredibly gracious towards me. I must be therefore incredibly gracious with other people and be patient and long suffering and gentle with them. Um, and as a, as a young guy, I think I can sometimes tend towards being more cut and dry and direct and sometimes unintentionally or even sinfully ignore the idea that I need to do this in a spirit of love. I appreciate you establishing that foundation for us. Yeah. And, and I, I can very much identify with that um, in my own personal experience. In my early years of conversion, um, I came down very heavily on fellow believers. Um, and it caused a lot of damage uh, in, in interpersonal relationships um, in the church that we were at. Um, you know, and it's, it's actually a token of self-righteousness and pride. Um, because I think it, one of the things is that it fails to recognize that, that you have the same tendencies and the same propensities in your own heart. And it's only by God's grace and by his restraint and by his providence that you haven't fallen into the same sins as what you're condemning in someone else. Um, and so, so that's why the whole atmosphere of discipline in the New Testament is one of, I'm broken. I'm going to, I'm coming alongside you as a brother um, to help to restore you to the love of Christ. Um, as opposed to, I'm standing over you. I know better than you. Um, you get yourself in line or I'm going to blast you. Um, right. You know, that, that's, that's not what the, the emphasis is. Um, and I think every parent begins to learn that as well in his or her own experience, because in parenting, you're dealing with a constant, that's, that's the constant theme. Um, and, and what's sobering about it is that when you see yourself reflected in your kids, and then you go to your kids to discipline them. You're like, Lord, you've been so merciful to me. Why didn't you blast me the whole time? Hmm. <laughs> and it's because he's, um, his mercy triumphs over judgment. So, the, and that, that's, I think, also the, the language that, that Galatians 6 um, uses. He, he goes on to describe, um, I think, the reason for the need for that gentleness uh, chapter six, verse one, if any brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Um, so he, he's kind of like sandwiching this discipline with two things. He's like saying on the one hand, hey, be gentle. And then on the other hand, be warned because you're prone to fall into exactly the same sin as what you're warning your brother or sister about. Um, and so I think that, that at least partially frames the, um, the biblical concept of, of mutual discipline in, in the body. Yeah. And I think those are, those are important 
key things that we, we definitely need to make sure we have as our foundation of, of recognizing that we're sinful and we should be cautious going to other people because we don't want to come across like you were saying, we don't want to come across like we have it all figured out and we're better than they are. But at the same time, that doesn't, it's easy, I think, for us to, as humans, ride the pendulum and end up in the ditch on the other side of the road where we don't ever, we, we're so concerned about making sure that we're loving and so concerned about not coming across as harsh and critical and judgmental that we never actually do what verse 15 says, where we go and tell him his fault. <laughs> we, yeah. we never actually do that. And so kind of using that as a, a sort of a segue, um, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit and kind of parse out a little bit of some of the steps. I don't, I don't like that word for this, but steps of church discipline here. So in verse 15, you've got a brother sinning against you, so you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that's two people, you and the person who has sinned against you. And if he's listened to you, you have gained your brother. Um, David, just in a practical sense, we've talked a lot about being loving. How do we do that? Verse 15. How do we do that in a loving way? I think one of the most important things to say about that is be particularly aware of the need to constrain the, um, the audience. Hmm. Jesus is very explicit about the audience. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, that is a very, very important principle. Um, we as human beings are prone to gossip and slander and we need to mortify that in ourselves. And part of the way of mortifying that is obeying this commandment, which is if, if your brother sins against you and you're grievously offended by that, um, go to him alone. Like don't go on text messaging to other people. Uh, don't go to the pastor of the church or to uh, anyone else, um, unless it's of such a significant degree that it requires a mediator to facilitate. But if there's a, a fault that, that he's, he or she has committed against you, just go to him alone. Um, and I think one of the other loving things that we can do in a community is if someone comes to you with an accusation of a fault of someone else who's committed against them, actually just stop them short and say, I don't want to hear any more of this. Our Lord Jesus said, if he's committed a sin against you, go to him alone um, and speak to him and, and go at it with the right attitude. Because Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, Again, there's that attitude of restoration. You want to gain your brother. You want to win him back uh, to fellowship, to love, to um, harmony. And so, so I think that, I mean, to me that I've seen this verse fail to be followed in many contexts. Um, and even one recently this week in the context of something going on in our family, that where, where this verse was not followed, um, and it results in a lot of 
unnecessary um, collateral damage, if you will. Um, so I'd say keep the collateral damage. It's between you and your brother alone. I would, I would add to that, kind of taking a different vein, uh, be particularly mindful of your tone and your posture. Um, and that's something, frankly, one of the best examples that I've seen of this has been Pastor Phil. Um, if you know Pastor Phil, Pastor Phil is six foot four and like 250. He's a big man. Um, and he's, he's mentioned to me actually on several times that intentionally when he has difficult conversations he has to have with people, he does not stand up for those conversations. He sits down because of his size. Mm. And whether it's your size or maybe it's just the, the natural timbre of your voice where you just have maybe perhaps a naturally sharper sounding voice. And you don't mean to come across as sharp and pointed and angry, but you might because that's just the way God made your voice. Mm -hmm. um, being aware of things like that, I think in a big way can help mitigate a lot of the confusion that might come from this, where you're not coming to someone and seeking and actually like you're not angry, but because you're not aware of the way you're coming across it can come across angry. Mm. And that's something even for me, um, I have a naturally, like my natural resting face looks grumpy. It doesn't, I don't know that it looks angry per se or, or sad. It just kind of looks grumpy and, and recognizing that and being intentional about the way I carry myself, the way I carry my face, the way I speak to someone in those kinds of situations. I think that can be a particularly helpful thing, uh, especially here in this first stage where I'm having that one-on-one -on -one conversation yeah um with somebody yeah that's a great point and I, I think one of the other things to add to that is um nothing can replace one-on-one -on -one in person communication do, if there's something significant enough that requires this direct approach don't do it over the phone unless unless geography constrains you um don't don't do it over text messaging please <laughs> don't do it over text messaging um do it in person you know just really like just be brave and do it in person because you know all think back to the garden uh, the garden of of eden when adam sinned against the lord what did the lord do he came down and he like he it would say he would walk with him in the cool of the garden he actually, there's a, there's a sense of embodiment where the Lord came to Adam um, to, to reconcile. What did the Lord Jesus do? The Lord Jesus came in person from heaven. He didn't send an angel to reconcile us to himself. He, he came himself uh, in the flesh. So, so don't use technology to replace um, reconciliation. It's, there's, there's it definitely, it's a blessing. Um, but in the case of, of something like this, fulfilling the command of Matthew 18, uh, it's very inappropriate to use technology uh, unless it's absolutely required. Right. Right. So if we, if, if we go to our person, go to our, our brother one-on-one -on -one and he listens to us, we've gained our brother. Then verse 16, if he does not listen, we take one or two others along with us so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that stage, 
where it's now bigger than just me and my brother. I've actually got other people that I'm taking with me. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts, any guidance that we could give on, on this stage here, this, this second stage, if you will? Well, I, I think one of the things to say is, is just observe the, the wisdom of the, the, the wisdom and the balance of scripture. Um, the Lord, the Lord has created a structure here in which he's saying, go on the, the basis of two or three witnesses. I mean, if, if you understand human history, um, even just to a, a small degree, that is such a radical concept to actually go with evidence um, and, and witness to bring a charge against someone. Um, it's this that actually set the foundation for uh, justice and equity in the Western world. So, I mean, let's just pause and, and appreciate that for a moment. Um, that's one thing. But the other thing is that I think as Pastor Phil mentioned in the sermon, um, it's not people that you go to, to that you've told the offense. It's people who have a direct acquaintance with the issue. Um, and that's what Jesus is referring to there. He's saying, bring two or three um, others along with you. And I think um, there's another passage that refers to uh, two or three witnesses. I think this is, this is uh, specifically um, referring back to like Numbers chapter, Deuteronomy and Numbers, right? Yeah, that's, this is the, that, this concept shows up in the Old Testament law um, yeah. as being necessary, particularly in the case of the death penalty. That you never right. put anyone to death unless you have more than one person. In a one-to-one -one case, you don't put anybody to death. Yeah. And, and even like in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's this idea of carrying, taking two or three people with you that are witnesses to the fault. Um, and when, when sin becomes so obvious in a person's life that it requires this, that sin has necessarily become public. Um, and so therefore, that's why public sin requires public confrontation. And the more public the sin, the more public the confrontation, and the more public the confession ultimately will need to be. Um, so I think that's the principles. There's, the, there's this like layering of the onion, as it were. Um, you've got in the inner, in the, the inner ring, you've got this one-on-one. -on -one. And then as the, as the issue expands, you, you, you still are attempting within your power to keep it constrained to the minimum number of people possible um, so that you maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace among the believers of the church. Yeah, and I would, I would add that at, at some point, the pastors need to be in the know on this. Uh, they need to know that this is going on. And I would say it's probably, it seems to me, at least on this end, that this is the stage where you want a pastor, at least, to, uh, to know about the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and not in a gossipy way, but your pastors are tasked with shepherding this congregation. And if we've got something that has reached the level where one-on-one -on -one conversations aren't getting us anywhere, um, this person has sinned against me and will not repent. And I've got to now bring multiple witnesses with me. 
I'm not saying necessarily one of those witnesses must be a pastor, but past a pastor should at least be in the know on this mm -hmm. uh, because we don't want to surprise them when we get to stage three where mm -hmm. he, where this person has refused to listen to the two or three witnesses. And now we tell it to the church uh, real quick, David, as we're, as we're coming to a close today, do you have any, any thoughts on this idea of telling it to the church? Uh, what does that look like? What are some basic principles that we should be aware of here? Well, you know, as we, we never want to go by experience um, as to interpret the biblical, uh, to interpret the scriptures. But I think our experience back in South Africa with, um, with Antioch, the church that we came from, being a, a sound Bible-believing church um, that practiced church discipline faithfully, we were there for a good seven, eight years, and we, we stepped through this process of discipline that reached levels three and, and even four, um, probably about 10 times. Um, the church was quite big, so the chance of issues coming up obviously was greater. Um, and whenever it came up, it was always, whenever an issue was brought to the church, um, it was always brought before the members of the church only. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't brought before the entire congregation, like on a Sunday morning, for instance, where you've got visitors and you've got, um, you've got people that, that are maybe fringe and just, you know, they're not committed to the, the body of the church. They're actually not uh, covenanted together with us. So that's the, the first thing. It was whenever it was brought to the, the assembly, it was always brought um, to the body that, that identified as Antioch Bible Church. And I think that's consistent with the, the biblical position. Um, and then it was always done with a, an atmosphere of love. Um, there was always clarity about what the offense was, never with gratuitous detail. So it was, it was sufficient to say this is an offense that has um, against the Lord or against a person that, that, has, that has signs of very serious um, implications for that person spiritually or for the body. Um, and then once that was then sufficiently described, the steps of, of reconciliation that had been taken would be described to the congregation as well. Um, and then the congregation at that point, and this would, this would be in like either a special members meeting um, or at a, um, it would be at like, for instance, a members, just a standard members meeting, if the process was just in the works. Um, and then the congregation would then be urged as a body to number one, pray for the, the person and pray for their reconciliation and, and restoration. And number two is they would then be, uh, the congregation would be urged to approach the person and to, in a spirit of love, seek to have them restored um, and to repent and return to the Lord. Um, and, and that would then, the, the, the leadership of the church would, this, would, this information would be given by the elders of the church to the body. Um, that's another thing to say. It wouldn't just be, it wouldn't be presented by the um, offended party or parties. Mm -hmm. It was presented um, by the, the eldership in a, in a, not in an emotionally disconnected way, but in a, in a way that was independent of like the offense, as it were. Um, and, and then so, so that, that would, that person would be given some time to repent. Um, usually depending on 
the severity of the offense, you know, would determine the, the time frame of how long that person would be given. Um, and, and then obviously if they still don't respond and don't turn back and repent, um, then it would be a matter of final excommunication. Um, also, which would be done at a, at a special members meeting. Um, so again, there's that idea of constraining it only to the fellowship of believers that have identified as members of the church. Um, and, and you're not publish the, publishing this to the world. You know, you're keeping, you're keeping the outside world out of it unless there's some sort of legal dispute that's going on. And w- there was one case that did involve um, legal and financial matters. But the idea is that you want to protect the reputation of the Lord Jesus and protect the church uh, unity. And so, so constraining the, like the collateral damage is, uh, is, is a good way to describe it. Um, and I think that kind of at least summarizes in our experience how we observe church discipline. But I think that's consistent with the biblical teaching uh, on the whole on how it should be conducted. Amen. Amen. Well, we could, we could have this conversation for a very long time. Uh, this is uh, this is an important conversation, and um, I'm glad for the opportunity we've had to have this conversation. Uh, but we are all out of time, so um, we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. Uh, thank you, David, for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you to the listener for taking the time to listen to us. And as always, we want to remind you that you can find more episodes of the podcast. You can find sermons from our church and even devotionals on our blog at fbcwm.org. And Lord willing, we'll be back next week with another episode.